Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today we have a full house. I'm joined by Paul Lewis, Doug Taylor, Mitch Mallard, Toby Lewis and Lindsay Thorburn to discuss artificial intelligence in cyber. Before we delve into the topic in a bit more detail, to work my way around with some introductions. So uh, Paul, you want to kick us off with a bit of an introduction of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Paul Lewis. I am the Chief Information Security Officer here at Nominet. Paul and Doug? Yeah, hi everybody. So I'm Doug Luck Taylor. I'm the head of information security at CSS Assure. Cool. Mitch? Uh, hi, I'm Mitch Mellard. I'm the threat intelligence consultant at Talion. Toby? Hello, everyone. My name is Toby Lewis, and I'm the global head of threat analysis for Darktrace. Fantastic. And finally, Lindsay? Hi, everybody. Lindsay Thorburn, and I'm the practice lead for risk and governance at CDS Defence and Security. Thank you very much. And now, a word from our sponsor, Qualys. But who are Qualys? Qualys is recognised as an industry pioneer and a premium provider of cutting-edge cloud-based security compliance and IT solutions, backed by a global subscriber base exceeding 10,000 customers. Qualys is incredibly proud to be supporting Evolution Podcasts. Together we are dedicated to addressing the prevalent challenges in the ever-changing landscape of cybersecurity. Qualys assists organizations in consolidating and automating their security and compliance solutions onto a unified platform, resulting in enhanced agility, improved business outcomes, and a significant cost reduction. Utilizing a single agent, the Qualys Cloud Platform delivers continuous critical security intelligence and remediation with comprehensive coverage extending across on-premise, endpoints, servers, public and private cloud, containers and mobile devices, ensuring robust security across a diverse environment. For more information, please visit Qualys.com and see for yourself how Qualys can have your business manage and reduce your cyber risk at speed, at scale, and in a quantifiable way. Okay, so now we're all introduced, so we're going to move on to the topic. Uh, so we all have a question or a statement around artificial intelligence in cyber. Uh, as usual, I'll work around the room, ask you to pose the question and give you reasons behind it, and give each of you an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So um, let's start with Toby. So Toby, do you want to kick us off with your question? Yeah, thank you. So I think my question really is thinking a little bit about how attackers might start to use AI from a you know from a cybersecurity perspective. What sort of techniques and attacks do we think that attackers might use AI to supercharge their attacks? So thanks, Toby. So Paul, come to you for your thoughts. Yeah, so I think just looking at the the kind of the original place where the attack chain was created i think it was like about 10 years ago or so now wasn't it around uh lockheed martin i think they kind of came up with the kind of cyber kill chain and that's kind of moved into the the kind of mitre attack framework one of the kind of really interesting places where you could apply like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all those kind of sort of really interesting technology which have emerged over the past sort of like, well, decades really, is around sort of the identification of something's actually happening because everywhere where we are looking in our cybersecurity lives, we're seeing, you know, thousands if not millions if not billions of events occurring at any point, any, any moment in time. We've got people who are working in organizations globally, like security operation analysts in SOCs at 3 a.m. in the morning, having to deal with alerts which are happening. 
and all of those kind of things coming together with the adversaries out there in on the internet actually getting better at doing what they're doing and stuff. So I think one of the really interesting places where you can actually start applying artificial intelligence in the um, the kill chain is you know detection. So how do I know that actually something is occurring in my environment in my state, and more importantly, what should I do about it? And I think. AI will allow us to kind of get to a place where we can start looking at all of those um, events, looking at all of those kind of areas where we may miss because they're quite subtle signals in the in the vast amount of data which we've got. But also, how can we kind of get to, you know, how do we use AI to assist us? How do we use AI to augment the kind of things which we need to look for? And then, you know, the kind of the dream is, you know, how can we make sure that those kind of decisions which have currently got the the kind of human in the loop, as it were, to be autonomous? So how can you kind of make sure that system services machines could actually do it without us actually having to sit there at 3 a.m. in the morning? And, you know, detection in the kill chain is really important. Persistence and all those kind of things, I think, is really, really important to disrupt the kill chain and ensure that we can we can uh, get to a, a better place where we can all sleep at night, I think. Yeah, I kind of echo um, what Paul said there. I, I think that AI allows us to really, you know, allow the heavy lifting to be done. You know, it, it does all that stuff that a human would normally have to sit there, as you said, and just kind of trawl through all of this information, understand what's happening at real time and, you know, things that happen in microseconds um so having the ability to have ai there really does play a part in being able to do the real heavy lifting as i see it and then that frees up the the analyst you know the senior guys to really go through and start to analyze all of that data that's coming through that really rich content um filled data to be able to really make assessments about the best thing to be able to prevent some of these attacks that are happening and really start getting a broader understanding of it. Um, I really do see AI as a kind of an enabler, and an assistant um, to a human element. But I also think there's always needs to be that human element. We can take it so far, but I do believe that we should make sure that there's always that oversight um, and don't let the AI overlords overtake us. Um, but, you know, this, that, that's, yeah, that's my point of view. And Lindsay? Yeah, so I mean, I guess looking at it from the attacker's perspective as well is, is one of the facets we need to consider. So where are they leveraging AI in order to make their attacks more fa- faster and more effective? And and I guess a lot of it's going to be tied into um, the ability to take large data sets and, and produce something which is, you know, quite targeted quite quickly and, and delivered at the right time in order to exploit the target at the most opportune moment. And one of the other areas I've been doing a little bit of research into lately is is the development of cognitive threat agents where, and and this is where we will see quite a few elements of the cyber kill chain tied up into into a single space. This is the ability for uh, a piece of malware to be developed and then change its code and morph um, and, and write that code in memory in order to identify a vulnerability, exploit it, and then see what else is out there, another vulnerability scan develop, write its own code in memory, and then exploit once more. So, you know, what we need to be aware of from a defender's perspective is the pace of change of of those attacks and how do we keep up to speed with them? And, and the analogy I use, and, and it's been used a couple of times previously with uh, with MITRE and, and how to develop, um, you know, the 10 best socks types in the world, which is uh, the Red Queen 
and about you know you've got to run just to keep pace with the attacker uh, and i think that's quite a nice analogy to tie up how quickly we're going to have to move um over the next sort of five years or so in order to to make sure we keep those those attacks at bay thanks uh, mitch I, I think at the moment as it relates to the kill chain, we're going to see the most legwork in the delivery phase. I mean, a lot of attackers, they operate out of countries that, for better or worse, you know, not really na many native English speakers. I think it speaks volumes that up until quite recently, and still at the moment, a legitimate role that needs filling in a lot of these organizations are ransomware negotiators and people that they do struggle to recruit, people who serve both of the delivery phase, uh, whether that be spear phishing, whether that be crafting uh, social engineering to the point where they can hit specific individuals, but it also comes afterwards if they're liaising with someone at the company and they're trying to elicit uh, financial gain or if they're trying to get some kind of database ransom. And while we're not at the point, I don't think, of the minute where many advanced threat groups are going to be asking AI to write code for them, that whole bridge of become making a non-native English speaker really convincing, especially if it's a company where a lot of their correspondence is public, because in theory, if you wanted to craft something that had the feel of a certain company, you could ingest mass amounts of data, build a small model with it, and then you could kick out something that would be very convincing to the average person, especially depending on how much data you have. So I do think that's the most likely area at the moment that it's going to be utilized in the, the sky's the limit going forward but it's not quite there in terms of just scanning and writing exploits by itself yet thanks rich and toby you'd like to add anything yeah i, mean, look, I think I'll, I'll try and kind of address i think a couple of kind of the different points that, that came up and i think look, paul and, and doug's kind of points around putting it from kind of the defender's perspective. And, and look, I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking to kind of someone who, who does that for a living, where we're trying to use AI to bring in huge volumes of data, data that would be otherwise impossible to pass as a human being and, and to try and discern patterns from it and, and work out what's going on. And, and, and I absolutely believe that, that machine learning has a part to play there in that ability to, I think, I think Doug's kind of phrasing really, it's about supporting the decision-making process. Autonomous is great at, you know, in for certain decisions, but also just in being able to give the, the user, the end user, the, the, the information that they need at their fingertips so much faster than they might do themselves and then i think kind of to come to kind of some of the points made by by lindsay and, and mitch i think look we pick on some really kind of good points here around the idea of generating at a much faster pace much more convincing social engineering for the targeting of of individuals and actually i'm going to take mitch's point and slightly twist it slightly and i think look most phishing emails that exist out there actually are in english and so where you've got attackers who are able to write phishing emails look they can already do a fairly basic level of english we know it's not brilliant we know we can, you know, to a degree, give users awareness to spot the kind of the slightly dodgy English emails. For me, actually, one of the interests will be an attacker's ability to write uh, convincing phishing emails in any language. And so therefore, we're talking about individuals who have only ever received phishing emails in English now getting it in their native language. And so suddenly you've got people um, in France, in Germany, who are just used to getting sort of the standard English spam, now getting it in their own language. And that might be a real kind of force multiplier for some of those attackers. And, and I think just really kind of, kind of close up on kind of Lindsay's point around the ability for AI to, you know, constantly evolve. I mean, I, I don't know. And I think that, that we're starting to stray into sort of sentient being territory in that, that state. But, but I think there's also an element around, I suppose, practically, sort of looking at it from a practical side of things, which is, you know, vulnerability detection, sort of exploit development. 
there's a lot of sort of opportunism that kind of creeps into that. You can't identify a vulnerability if there isn't one. And so whilst I think AI can help maybe sort of speed up some of that process, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, the end of the world type territory where AI is going to be detecting vulnerabilities in every piece of software that ever existed. So I think I think we can also be a bit more measured with it as well, I think. Thanks, Thanks Toby. Okay, uh, Paul, we'll come to you next for your question. Fantastic. So, so my question's sort of centered around what happens today and what may happen uh, in the sort of like next 12 and 36 months. So my question is, say, where are the best places to use machine learning and, and AI in the organization, both today in 12 months' time and, and 36 months' time? Thank you very much. Mitch, come to you first. Uh, as far as best places right now, I do think we have to be very careful, as uh, I imagine the vast majority of us operating as an MSSP, client data being paramount and how specifically talking about the more modern uh, iteration of AI, large language models. Uh, we've seen what have, what's happened with companies such as Samsung, and they've really not understood the kind of the, the downsides of their effectively feeding information into a database. But because it's new and shiny, it's an interface that non-technical people can interface with. They don't realize that information is being offered up freely and other people can query it in a sense. So at the moment, I do think we have to be very careful. It's got wonderful applications for individuals say if you have a not to go back to the non-native english speaker point but if you have a support function that maybe aren't uh 100 comfortable speaking with that cadence to a specific client or if you have a client that operates in another country i i think there's a really interesting translation point there but if we go away from the modern iteration of ai as people are really discussing it at scale and we fall back on more machine learning behavioral analytics things that we use as part of a lot of scene platforms these days things that are used for playbook development things that are just essentially designed to make analysts lives easier make false positive detection rates lower just at the moment streamlining the process while there's a far off future where you might be able to kind of emulate the job of a first tier analyst entirely, which is kind of, I guess, the long term dream of a lot of socks. Uh, I don't think we're at that point yet, but to go to the 12 and 36 months time with the speed that we've seen this technology change, the sky is the limit really. And it depends on how information sharing in these large data sets goes forward. And if we do see any clamp down in the near future. Rich? Doug, comes to you. Yeah, so I think today we're obviously seeing it used heavily. You know, we've got Dark Trace on, on the call. Uh, you know, threat detection and response. You know, it's used heavily in in the uh, the technology there, and it will continue to evolve as time goes on. Um, I think for, as we move further into sort of the future in twelve months or thirty six months, it's more around again how to really under again like I'll come from a defense point of view you know how do we understand all the sophistication around the potential attacks that co could come into our organizations and how we can react to those in a real quick way to protect um, you know company information pe people's data you know privacy and stuff so for me it's about trying to make sure that for the future we can you know really start to put these things in place to help uh, organizations to be able to protect data because that's you know data is power you know and being able to make sure that we can protect that i think we really need to make sure that we keep pace but to, again to coin the phrase i think it was lindsay says you know you you having to run to try and just keep up with what's going on at the moment it's so multifaceted there's so many things going on there's so many it's you know a can of worms has been opened and like with everything that's new and shiny you know 
what tends to happen is we we don't understand the ramifications of using that technology right now. It's only later on when we start to really understand the implications of, like you said, putting it into a, a big data set and how, who can access that and what that can be used for and how we would, you know, how that ultimately could be useful for us as a human race, but ultimately may cause us some issues with how our data is then, you know, used and sold and monetized and, you know, which is obviously what attackers want to do or, or even, you know, state-sponsored threat actors, you know, how they use that information about how we do things in our day-to-day lives and how that could impact, you know, the way that they manipulate and propaganda and stuff like that. You know, there's so many things to it uh, that, you know, AI can do because it can pull all that information. It can build that kind of straw man uh, of, of you and who, what you do. It's already been done. It's already been done with, your, you know, social media, et cetera, using the power of AI for the future as well. I think that's really going to, um, it, it's a very interesting uh, world that we're going to move into. It's a world where we have to question everything. We have to be able to say, we have to authenticate what we're seeing. You know, we talk about deep fake technology and, and you know, we talk about the um, using AI to maybe present as if we're on this call now and I could be speaking in Spanish. So there's a lot of technologies that allow you to do that. And how would you know that, whether that's real or not? Is it important to know whether it's real or not? Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's so many useful things that AI can do, but so many things that I think that, we really don't understand the ramifications of that right now and for the future. Thanks, Doc. Nancy? Yeah, so um, I, I guess it's not got, it's not a cop-out answer, but it depends, is it, actually the answer. So where are you going to integrate ML and AI in your organization very much depends on your start point. You know, there'll be many organizations out there whose start point was about November last year when generative AI and chat GBT really became something and, and everybody then jumped on the, the AI bandwagon, which generative AI is just a subset. There'll be other organizations out there who have had much longer history with it, you know, 10 years or even more. So where you're gonna use it over the next sort of 12 to 36 months will very much depend on your confidence on in your organization and the people within your organization's ability to use safely and leverage the benefits of AI. I I like to think of it as in in two parts for those who are just kind of stepping out into this this brave new world and and it's decision support versus decision making. So you'll use a lot of these different tools to help support your decision making and there'll be a human in the loop whilst you're still quite, I guess, uh, new to to AI as a whole. As you get more mature and you start to understand how the uh, the benefits of AI and how you can use it within your organization, and what it's doing, and and what you really need for this is is explainable AI, right? It's it's taken away some of the the, the veil of what's what's happening, but under the hood. And once you've got the understanding of what's happening and and you know what why it's making the decisions it's making, that's when you can start to hand over a little bit more control into that decision making process. That's where you start to get ahead of the attacker. That's where you can start to identify and react to things much quicker. So um, going back to the initial answer, it really depends on on your start point. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot to be gained by by introducing and starting to get involved with it now. Thanks, Lizzie. And sorry, come to you last. Um, I think there's just a part that I want to kind of really reiterate what both Mitch and, and Lindsay said, which I think is reflecting a little bit on 
what is AI? And, and this is not meant to kind of be some really sort of philosophical answer, but I think a lot of people, when they think of AI at the moment, it's ChatGPT. Like that's the that's the kind of the story of the moment that people focus on. But I think as both Mitch and Lindsay have sort of highlighted, that actually AI is this massive umbrella term for a whole range of different approaches, which is largely around taking a whole load of data and helping support a decision out the end of it. Now, that decision might be to create a new image you know, in the context of some of the generative AI we see. Some of it might be on more sort of the defenders landscape where I come from, which is we think that might be a bit suspicious or that might be a bit dodgy. Or some of it might be for kind of other sort of decisions. Now, obviously, we're looking at this within a cybersecurity context. But I mean, to go to Paul's original question, you know, how could you use it in your organization? Fundamentally, wherever you've got big buckets of data, data that's almost too big for a human to process in one go. Can you use AI to help bring out patterns that you might not have otherwise spotted? Are there applications where you can look at AI and and uh, identify maybe new branches of business to kind of go into or possible opportunities that you hadn't been able to identify before? As I said, that said, I am from the cybersecurity landscape. I am going to automatically think much like Doug does in the head of a defender and where can I use AI to help spot things? And, and from my perspective, you know, that's very much around how can I use capability like AI to take in large volumes of data, data that's going on inside our networks, inside our email systems and go, is there anything here that I need to be worried about? Um, and that's a really powerful way in my mind, certainly, of using using AI at the moment. Thanks, Toby. And Paul, anything to add? Yeah, I think the reason why I kind of pose this question is is because, you know, whether we like it or not, we are, all of us on this call and, and, and everybody who is going to be sort of listening to this podcast are using AI, AI regardless if they like it or not. So every time you use one of the large search engines, regardless if you um, use any of the sort of customer services um, systems and services out there, you will we'll be using it in, in one form or another. And you're, and the definition of what AI is is a really interesting sort of philosophical discussion in itself. But I think I'm going to be rather boring and answer my own question in, in kind of two ways. So, you know, where should organizations use AI slash machine learning type things today? I think, you know, the key thing is, you know, organizing the data and IT asset management is an absolutely crucial thing in this in this environment because if you don't know what you've got, you can't secure it. And if you don't understand how vulnerable those particular IT assets are, therefore you won't be able to apply patching and do vulnerability scans and so on and so forth. Which brings me on to sort of where where we could be in twelve months, where we're starting to look at more automated and even more kind of intelligent sort of threat exposure types of um, sort of systems and services and, and products which we could use against all of our environments to to make sure that we have not forgotten about the the, the Windows 2012 server, which is on the internet, which has just been um, sort of hacked because we didn't patch it over, over the years and stuff. And I think then when we get to sort of like 36 months and three years into the future, we then start getting into sort of uh, the things which Lindsay was talking around, around you know, how do I ensure that the controls which are in place are effective? What kind of things do we need to do to make sure that uh, the, the 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 risk which we're running is is, is controlled and categorized? Because it's all about about data and making um, data and having having people in the loop to to make us uh, in a more can secure way. So thanks, Paul. Okay, Lindsay, we'll come to you next for your question. Super. So mine was uh, really around the 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 people and the recruitment aspect of of AI and uh, and cybersecurity, and it's it's really you know what what is it do we think that we need to prepare our or what what do we need to do in order to prepare our workforce to um, 
accept and adopt AI into the environment and ensure that they've got longevity themselves and, and that they're not just replaced. Thanks, Lindsay. And Doug, come to you. Yes, um, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, whenever new technology comes along, you know, everybody starts to panic, you know, whether that's going to take their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And um, again, going back to the, to the points that we've already made, which is, you know, I, I really see AI as, and, and everything that comes under that umbrella term as supporting the individuals and in their everyday jobs and making their lives easier and then allowing them to then focus on some of the really important stuff. And certainly in cyber, what we tend to see is that, you know, we know there's a big skill shortage in our industry, but being able to utilise tooling that allows us to be able to, again, use that term, that heavy lifting so that we're not having to do the mundane going through and looking through a whole list of various different things, you know, indication of compromises and try to do all that analysis, we can use the technology to really help us, then that frees up the analyst to be able to then, and people in the industry to be able to do some of the other really sort of interest, more interesting stuff, as I would put it. Um, So I really think that we should always see it as an enabler, something that really helps people. Um, but we also need to then train these people in the use of these tools and be able to make sure that they can utilize the tooling in the best way. Um, and again, make sure that they can fully understand if their role changes from at the moment you're doing a lot of the, you know, eyes on analysis, how we then train them to be able to you know, progress their career, move into other areas of you know, cybersecurity, again, using these tools, or if they have an interest in um, MI, AI, sorry, and machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, being able to really be able to provide them with the right level of training and get them on board with that to, to be able to, you know, further their career. Um, yeah, I think that's that's my viewpoint of it. Thanks, Doug. And Mitch? As far as analysts and whatnot, I think I've probably seen the same sentiment that a lot of people have seen here in that people, when they first see the capabilities of this, uh, especially people who are just starting out in their careers, they see it possibly as a replacement in the medium to long term, and they're worried. But I do think a lot of people aren't realizing that, especially people in the security space, in terms of the kind of soft skill set that you need to both work with and understand AI, I think people are actually really a lot better placed to work in the security industry than they realize. One of the kind of light bulb moments, I guess you could call it for me, was I was in the, this was a few months ago now, I was in the office, someone from our support function tapped me on the shoulder. They said, "Uh, you're really familiar with regex. Can I have your help with something? At which point I said, I'm no programmer, but like many people pulled up a NP++ document. I have a cheat sheet. I'll fire this over to you. I'll show you how to look for exactly the thing you're looking for. And just behind me, there was a conversation. This is when ChatGPT was in its kind of second iteration. And everyone was playing with it. One of our principal analysts and a couple of the analysts on the main triage teams were having a play around with the newer version of ChatGPT. And they were passing around prompts And looking back and forth, it was kind of looking at my regex cheat sheet, and I was looking at the document that they had open, which had all these chat GPT prompts. And it's essentially, it's just, it's the same thing. Once you peel away that kind of new spangled layer of, okay, it's human readable interaction, you are writing queries and you are retrieving data. And once you boil it down to that core component, I do think people are a lot better placed than they realize who already operate in the security industry for that reason. So when we say specifically, how do we train the next generation of cybersecurity professionals to work with this? I think they're already a lot better placed than they realize. And it's just breaking down those walls of understanding and kind of dusting off the 
the, the little coat of magic that it has because it's the new and shiny thing, as several people have said previously. Thanks, Mitch. Toby? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'll, and I'll come back to kind of a, a point that I think probably comes up time and time again, which is just recognizing when we're talking about AI, we're talking about ChatGPT, and we're talking about the, the totality of AI. But I think certainly thinking about ChatGPT, you know, this is the area where a lot of people are focusing at the moment. And I think from my perspective, we're not necessarily talking about deep technical skills. We're talking about straightforward human analytical skills. So how would you ask a question that isn't leading? I mean, that's basically prompt engineering. And we talk about the idea of being able to uh, create prompts, as, as Mitch has sort of uh, just said there. Um, but actually, how you write a prompt could send the AI off into a complete nosedive somewhere else. We did a little bit of playing around with with prompt engineering. We got a little bit of data. And you ask it one question, uh, tell me how this data might be malicious. And it will go away and it will tell you five ways that this data is malicious. You ask it a completely different question, which is, can you tell me if this data is legitimate? And it will go away and tell you five ways in which this data is legitimate. But at no way does it tell you if it's legitimate or malicious. And so part of it is just about how you ask the question. And that's just, I mean, in some respects, that's journalism, right? How do you ask a non-leading question that just gets you a really, really honest answer? Uh, and I think there was a, a point you know, made to an earlier question earlier on by Doug around how do you... How do you have trust in the material that's being served upon you? Um, and again, I remember doing this when I was in year seven history. Like, how do you analyze your sources? How do you make sure that the evidence that's being presented um, is trustworthy? And how do you like, analytical bias? How do you strip out the data that might be corrupted, so to speak? So and, and whether it's the output of AI or whether it's the output of generative AI or whether it's something else entirely, I think having that sort of slightly skeptical understanding of, well, actually, where did that data? to come from and how do i verify what's what's coming out of this tool so paul i come to you yeah fantastic so just building on, on on those kind of comments i think there's a difference between training the next generation of cyber professionals to work with ai and generating the tools which could be used by cybersecurity professionals and one one is very different than the other i think from a training to use the actual um the ai solutions which which we could be used in the cybersecurity selector i think you know we will, as it was mentioned a moment ago, just use them as a kind of daily thing, which we will do in a kind of business as usual sense. So I think, you know, having those kind of rigorous skills like journalism has mentioned our history, I think that's really important because if you can use a tool, you don't necessarily have to understand how the tool is created and, and all those kind of things. I think where cybersecurity is a, is a kind of a leg up is because it's got some very rigorous underpins from the likes of computer science or people who've come from sort of like logic backgrounds, those kind of things, or even people who are from different backgrounds as well have a lot to contribute in this area, like history and the, and the social sciences. So I think there's kind of two aspects to that. The people who are going to create the tools themselves, and obviously they have their mathematics and statistics and, and science backgrounds in those kind of areas, but also the kind of the softer angle to actually sort of say, well, how can I utilize the tools which are going to be uh, given to us in in however many years time is is going to be a really interesting thing like prompt engineering model engineering you know analysis those kind of skills are going to be really really important and i do remember having um, the the sort of primary and secondary uh, source discussion with my history teacher i think it was in year 9 rather than year 7 so i think that's that's a really interesting thing and be able to discern how you will get the information from the tools which are going to be there. You know, I think um, ChatGPT now can scour the internet um, in real time so they can get updated results. 
um, rather than having to rely upon a, a pre-trained model from from sort of uh, eight, twelve, or sixteen months ago. I think that that kind of level of of progress is really interesting when we start looking about how can the next generation of, of professionals work with AI. So I'd argue that people would just use the tools and and the, the kind of the models and the AI which is embedded in existing tools would actually just be something which we would just consume and just use as any other tools. So I think it's a, it's an interesting. Um, sort of inflection point where we are to sort of look at those kind of tools and say, right, okay, cool, we're going to use it, but do we actually need to understand the the kind of the magic which happens in in the box itself? So that's kind of where I'm thinking about that. Thanks, Paul. Lindsay, anything to add? Yeah, so some some really good points brought there. Apart, you know, some of it certainly on the on the soft skill side of it that that's definitely still required element in order to you know translate what's coming out of that you know that product that's been delivered particularly this a, a generative um, source into what that actually means for the business. Um, you know, from, from my perspective, though, I mean, this you, you can look at this back, you know, go back to, you know, the late 80s when everybody said, well, that's it, all of our jobs are going to be taken by computers. But look at us all now. Everybody's sat on a on a laptop or a PC um, or a Mac, and you know they're they're working with the new technology that's that's been disruptive at that period. Everyone's just sort of like learned to move with it and and take the skills that they've already got and just apply them in a slightly different way. Um, and equally, I think the education sector was 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 relatively good at making sure we had you know those sorts of uh, capabilities accessible to most people certainly at my sort of age, the 40s sort of like age, uh, when we were quite young. And I remember writing code um, to make a like a, a little Lego Technic washing machine go through a cycle. And that, and that was at like seven or eight years old. So I think as we um, we progress into this new age of MLEI, it's about making sure that our workforce uh, move along with it. You know, it's not something that's big and scary and new. It's just a, another tool. And I think everybody's kind of brought always different parts of the conversation that you know we just have to learn how to adapt um and and grow with the capabilities in order to make best use of them and it's not necessarily something to be to be wholly scared of so thanks Lindsay. Uh, mitch we'll come to you next uh so for my question i'm coming at this from point of a threat intel background and this is essentially what i have been asked repeatedly by many clients ever since this kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into the public consciousness to the point now we've i don't know if anyone else has seen it we have flavors of cola that say they were co-designed with ai so obviously a lot of ceos a lot of people are taking notice of this so i'm going to ask what advice would you give to an organization that wants to incorporate ai but is unsure of the risks thanks Mitch. So we come to you first. Uh, I mean, I, I think pretty much every working day at the moment for me is is talking about how organisations can use AI in their organisation from a cybersecurity perspective. I think there are elements that touches on things that that we've covered already about how do we give people the trust and confidence that what they're getting out of the product, what they're getting out of the tool that they're using, is something that they can feel confident with and comfortable with and, and actually some of the, the you know whether we're putting a human in the loop to kind of give that extra layer of confidence or we're actually hands up and saying do you know what i trust it enough that it's going to be fully autonomous so there's definitely an element of how do you go through that process of building trust in what ai is outputting and certainly that's been something that we've had to kind of go through over the last 
well, at least five years, if not going back 10 years when we first started doing this, where we had to, in terms of how we rolled out some of our technology to our customers, we had to build in an element of trust building in that process. We don't just drop it all on day one, walk away and say, there we go. It's got to be a process where you're working with the security team, where you're walking through each different iteration until ideally you're at that point where they're just completely comfortable with the way it works. Um, I think the other way, and, and certainly this is this is a model that we've taken forward, is there's an element where when we talk about AI to somebody who maybe doesn't have a technical background, we do stray into Terminator Skynet 5 territory where they're just absolutely fearful of this thing that they don't really understand. And so there's an element of you almost just have to show them and demonstrate to them and allow them to kind of play with it. And one of the kind of things, things that I, I liked when ChatGPT came out was that rather than just being this mystical thing that nobody really knew about, you could actually log in and play with it and you could upload stuff and you could ask it questions. And it, you know, you got, you got to write a song in your own favorite Simpsons character. I don't know. But like you got the opportunity to play with it and learn by playing. And I think that is, for me, so fundamental in giving people the confidence to a take on a new piece of technology is letting them see it, letting them see in their own environment, let them see how it operates. Um, and ideally, side by side with what else they've already got in place. Do you get better results? Do you get more useful results? Do you get more interesting results? Um, and I think that learn by doing that, giving them that experience, holding their hand through that process. I'm, I'm talking about the Dartrace sales playbook at this point. But look, it's the process that we know and has learned has, has worked and gives people the confidence to, to take that jump. Thank you. Lindsay? Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to, you know, if an organization wants to adopt it, but really aren't aware of the risks, it, it comes down to, uh, and I'll coin a, a politician now, which I don't do very often, which is education, education, education. Okay, it's about making sure that those who are responsible um, and, and, and accountable for the adoption of AI across an organization are aware of those risks. Now, there's, there's some really good um, sources out there and the Harshree Centre is one where they're they're providing sort of like free education on AI and other emerging technologies and they've got like explainers and explore sort of like sessions in order to um, just let people you know get a bit of an inside track of what's what's happening in the in the industry and what happens if I if I adopt this as a as a technology one of the challenges that that we see though is is probably because AI is so fresh and so new is a lack of reliable metrics about risks. We look at things like financial risk, it's, you know, there's, there's insurance risk and, and, and such like. You've got some really solid metrics. There's lots of years of how often is it going to flood in Tewkesbury, um, you know, on, on any given sort of winter. You've got a bit of an idea there, but the risks associated with AI, it's such a new sector. There's no real, you know, hard metrics to work from. So it's quite difficult to, to I guess, quantify what that might look like. And, and I guess the last thing they need to be aware of um, and uh, just to, to to keep a track of is the pace of change. We've already talked about how quickly AI is moving. And this is where we need to have that constant risk management life cycle when we consider the AI risks, oh, that's wrong, the risks of AI um, and, and how quickly the technology moves. You know, you can take a risk assessment of your organization and what it means to adopt uh, some AI technology today. But in three, six, nine, 12 months time, is the position still the same? Are the threats still the same threats that you cataloged nine, 12 months ago? Or has that changed significantly? And do you need to readjust your posture? I think one of the key things to draw then is 
making sure that as an organization, before you get too heavy into adopting AI, have a have like a policy, an AI adoption policy. What does it mean? How are you going to control it? How are you going to integrate it into your organization? And then set up a couple of pilot projects. Don't need to jump in head first with every single technology. Take those small steps and do it comfortably and under control. Exactly. And Doug, come to you. Yeah, from an organization point of view, I think you know it's been touched on there. Is it's really around that risk assessment of putting a new tool. Anytime you put something new into a business, anytime you, you change tact, anytime you do something in a business, you need to assess what that risk is to the business and how putting something in place will either help or potentially could cause a problem. Um, and I, I agree with Lindsay, you know, it, it isn't just a put something in place, set and forget. You have to continually look at this. And, you know, whereas before or still currently now, actually, we put in place, you know, products and services and bits and pieces. They kind of go in, we get them into a good shape. They run and then they run and we kind of let them run. We leave them alone. And that's generally what tends to happen in many organizations. But with AI, again, depending on the type of solution you're putting in place, if it's something that is doing an action for you on your behalf or is trying to feed data and is trying to give you information, again, the, the landscape may have changed. Your risk appetite may have changed. The way that you would want something to happen has changed. The data that you've collected changes the way that something happens within the, the solution you've, you've bought. So it's just making sure that you fully understand that and make sure that you are always continually checking that that solution is still fit for purpose and that you can continually rely upon that solution to to do what you need it to do. Um, yeah, and you know, again, I agree that you need to make sure that you have this plan of action of, of continue checking that, uh, you know, the, the solution to make sure that it's, as I say, fit for purpose. Next up, Paul, to you. So I, th- I think there are a couple of areas where if I was to give um, somebody advice about, you know, what are the risks around AI and stuff. So I think one of the biggest kind of concerns which which people may want to consider is, you know, privacy risk. So, you know, if people are using various systems and services which they have been popping in either confidential data from their organizations or, you know, personal identifiable data and all those kind of things, then, you know, understanding what risks come with that and you know what kind of areas they may need to write policy on which was mentioned a moment ago you know do you need to have a policy around you know what privacy uh, safeguards around the use of your know, chat gpt or the use of um, various other kind of you know systems like bing for example which is now using um, the the sort of ai um, functions from chat gpt chat gpt i think that's interesting when you start looking at um the the kind of the European Union when they introduced sort of various AI acts and all those kind of things. I think it was twenty twenty one when they introduced some like new sort of legislation and regulation around that. So I'm not sure if that's passed yet, but there's kind of a, there's a signal in in that kind of area. I think also as well if we're starting to use potentially either um, AIs which have been trained on previous um, data sets, then if it's internal or external, you know what does that actually mean when from we get to a bias perspective. So what biases could be built into the actual AI models themselves? And that's, you know, that's an interesting um, discussion when you start talking about the training data, which these kind of things are going to be used on. And, you know, how can you understand, you know, whether or not your your system is going to give you the right answer or give you the right advice and guidance if we're talking about what kind of courses of action we're going to take on the answers which we get from that. And then I think, you know, 
when we then start thinking about um, AI as well, there's not just negative risks here, but there's also opportunity risk too, because you know these systems and services have been created to enable us to do things, you know, better, faster, cheaper, quicker, and all those kind of really good things. So we need to be cognizant of the of the risks which we could benefit from by doing things, and potentially, you know, as people have mentioned previously removing uh, people from jobs and maybe redeploying them or using sort of the skills which they're having in one area and applying because you could automate those kind of things as well. So we just need to be um, aware of those kind of areas too. And I think the final thing, which is really, really important, is looking at the legal aspects of this as well, because I, I, as I understand it, if you were to submit some of your internal confidential data or if you were going to submit some potentially other data as well, which could be used, it then becomes part of the model itself if it's being used to train that model or it may even be regurgitated to another person where you may not want it if you've got commercial commercially sensitive data and i think uh, at the beginning of the call um, there was as an organization which was mentioned as well around actually don't put all of your sensitive ip data into these systems and services so i think there are a number of areas where you just need to put the guardrails in place to ensure that you are making informed decisions about using these kind of tools and technologies and and make sure that you understand with your eyes wide open what you're going to do so tread carefully but obviously ensure that you you've got the the, the best information from from technology from legal professionals and, and from from other areas as well wonderful uh, mitch anything to add i think just kind of collating all the points is very much it, it's controlled caution we're at the point where a new generation ai particularly again the generative or the large language models have reached the public consciousness in such a way that particularly C-suite individuals, uh, sans CISOs usually. CISOs are usually the ones urging caution and pumping the brakes. But other C-suite individuals, generally when they see this level of push being made by this number of competitors, they are afraid of being left behind and there's a danger of caution being thrown to the wind. So I do think in cases like this, we do have to really shout from the rooftop the risks of this, put on a pedestal for better or worse the people who've already fallen afoul of this and make sure that again with anything where the barrier to entry is significantly lowered in terms of a technical requirement to pull it off it's the same as if we were working with something that is a newly disclosed proof of concept code the it's a higher risk because someone can instantly take that and with very little skill required incorporate it into an existing attack portfolio because someone's already done it it's the same level of lowering that bar to entry that makes it more of a risk and companies need to understand that and they need to update their internal policies appropriately and so we can temper the kind of the ai gold rush if you will thanks bitch and finally, we'll come to you, Doug, for your question. Yeah, so so my question is, uh, what role should governments have in potentially regulating AI development, and how could this help or hinder the ability to use AI to protect us against threat actors? Thank you, Doug. Uh, and uh, we'll come to you first, Paul. So this is a really interesting question, because I've kind of thought about regulation and, and all this kind of stuff in, in, in a number of ways. And I guess, I guess you can kind of break it down into a number of facets. So... The way I see this is you've got this market emerging where people, customers, or organizations will use AI in general. And that's great. And then we've got people on the internet and you can access things and all those kind of sort of really good things. So when we start talking about 
regulation effectively regulations there to make sure that you know the market works and you know we have good quality products and making sure that if the market failure then we can sort of rectify that failure and all those kind of good things so when we start talking about ai and when we start talking about it from a regulatory perspective it's a really difficult conversation because ultimately you want to enable innovation and you want to make sure that you have the ability to kind of do really good things and you know all of the kind of innovation has come from private companies in this particular area with a greater or lesser sort of extent around the you know, university research and all those kind of things but then you start getting into a situation where you're going right okay then if I've got an AI system which is not accessible by a you know a citizen in a state or a user of a company or a product or service, and they're not able to ac access that, effectively what that you're denying that service. You're denying the ability in the cybersecurity context to potentially defend themselves or make sure that they've got their personal identifiable data made secure and all these kind of really sort of knotty problems. So I think. The role of government within AI regulation is a really difficult question, but I don't think we're at a position now to make an informed decision for, for two reasons, firstly. The first reason is it's still a very immature market and it's still a very immature um, sort of technology because we are just starting to scratch the surface about how we could actually use it and utilize it and all those kind of things. It's mature in some areas, but less so in others. And I think the second thing as well is Typically, like I mentioned, regulation is used when we start talking about, you know, the price is too high in a particular area or the profits which are being um, accumulated by companies is too large or, you know, the standards which are being used are not adhered to or, you know, in a myriad of other reasons as to why regulation is required in some areas to stop monopolies and so on and so forth. So I think... When we start talking about this and when we start talking about sort of specifically cybersecurity and AI, I think it's going to be a really interesting set of um, sort of like challenges in the next sort of like five, 10 years. For example, if we have an AI system and service which is stopping a ransomware attack or it is protecting somebody's PII data, for example, if that fails in some respect, and if that doesn't work as much as it do, would, could we take an AI to court and say, actually, by the way, this failed? Or would we then take the creators of that, or would we take the creators of the data who it was trained upon to court to try those kind of things? Because ultimately, the, the point, the reason why you have regulators, as I mentioned, is because of some type of failure in the market which exists. So how we would regulate that, I have no idea. But I think... Once we start getting to a point where it's ingrained in our lives and ingrained in our cybersecurity teams and we're using it, there's going to have to be some really interesting test cases from a legal perspective to actually look at how we can then effectively attribute, you know, not necessarily blame, but actually figure out what happened and why it happened and and what 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 actually went wrong if something did fail. So, you know, what role should governments have? I think it would be a watch and see at the moment, but what could they do down the line? I think that's probably for people who are much better informed from a legal and regulatory perspective than I, but I think it's going to be an interesting sort of like maybe five to 10 years going down the line. Oh.
Lindsay? Well, yeah, I think Paul's covered the bases really well there. There's, there's an area just I, I'd like to explore a little bit more, which is is when you talked about the uh, responsibility almost of what happens if something, if it doesn't do what it was meant to do. And there was a really interesting um, communications and digital committee session held about two weeks ago. And there was a couple of hours worth of dialogue uh, and, and questioning into sort of, uh, you know, a subject matter expert panel. And this was exactly, this was one of those conversation points. And it was about liability and responsibility. And where did that, where does that fit? And where does that settle when it comes to, uh, you know, large language models, as they were talking about the time, not necessarily delivering what it said it was going to deliver or delivering uh, something which later turned out to, you know, uh, impact the, business in a negative fashion rather than a positive fashion like it was meant to i think it's a really sort of it was a the discussion went on for quite some time and it bounced back and forward and i don't think they ever got to some sort of like agreement just that it was going to be extremely difficult in order to pin down responsibility versus liability in that space where does where does government come in for or and where's our responsibility or their responsibility is is probably about just ensuring you know that it's AI developed within the the UK in particular, and and wherever it's going to be deployed, it's been done in an ethical manner. I think all it really comes down to ensuring that what we're creating um, and and deploying is being as explainable as possible. So we talked about that transparency previously, and making sure that those who are using it have got the ability to see in and what's happening. And and ultimately it, 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 for the, the, the lay person, it's about the privacy of, of their own personal details and, and anything that's applied into that model, making sure that that is, that is, that is retained. Thanks, Lizzie. And Mitch, come to you. In terms of government regulation, I agree with what's been previously said. It's This is a really hard question, both to kind of both quantify the actual question and to answer it. Uh, I don't think it's going to be controversial if I say that most people in government are dinosaurs when it comes to technology. The methods that elevate people to that level of... Uh, that level of seniority in government are usually financial uh, based in from that world and not from the uh, technology sector that spawns a lot of these new innovations. So these people and by extension regulations and the law are kind of lagging behind in a lot of uh, respects. I remember a panel that I was listening to recently and someone posed that have we already had the crossing the Rubicon moment in terms of AI or is that upcoming? But a lot of people who don't understand this space, I would argue that five, ten years ago, when we first started exploring modular AI in terms of uh, both builder bots and testing bots, a lot of people, if you were to say to them, humans have already made things that we are functionally using and we don't understand how they work, that intrudes onto the realm of sci-fi for a lot of people. But if you break it down in terms of a lot of the elements we have with making modular bots now you have your builder you have a tester and then you iterate several billion times say for the purpose of uh, for the purpose of uh, sorry i had a for the for the purpose of self-driving cars you would build tests is this a traffic cone you feed in copious amounts of data through a service like google capture however many millions of people clicking on where the traffic lights are where the cones are what classes is a bike you build the data set to a massive point so we, we already have little bits of modular ai that are able to very good very specialized at tiny little tasks such as 
identifying a particular thing in a picture, whereas government hasn't stepped in at any point in this process where we already have builder bots, tester bots, creating things that people don't understand how they work and incorporating them in one, one way or another. We're now at the point where we have things that are more in the public consciousness, uh, large language models like ChatGPT. We have the generative audio AI that can reconstruct. You had the case recently where Stephen Fry was talking about his voice being stolen because someone just ingested the entirety of the audiobooks of the Harry Potter series into a model, and then they could produce whatever they wanted from that. I think one of the key dangers going forward would be a composite AI that could take any of these modules. Again, this is getting into a little bit of skynet territory but if you don't have any regulation about what something is allowed to do when it has all of these capabilities available to it if you had an ai that worked that as a composite for all of these and it had access to generative audio generative images generative language a bunch of these other modules for identification like such as what's been developed for self-driving cars all of a sudden you start to get from Going back to Paul's point, government's role is traditionally regulating financial elements, stopping monopolies, making sure that the flow of the economy isn't disrupted by any one particular technology or manufacturing technique. Whereas this starts to encroach upon the, this could be a genuine danger for just the workforce in general, if it is allowed to develop to a certain point. So I do think the because people are relatively behind on their understanding at levels of government with technology, we've already had the kind the time to put a stop to this or introduce meaningful regulation was probably when discussing AI as a whole five, ten years ago, and hopefully we can catch up. It's just that ChatGPT, large language models, to reiterate points that were made earlier, have dragged it more kicking and screaming into the public consciousness because this is identifiable, this is relatable in a way to the average person. So hopefully we can see some traction on that in the very near future because there's been a lot more discussions about government and what they're going to do over the past six months than there has been at any time over the past 10 years as this technology has been developing. Thanks, Mitch. Zoe, I'll come to you. Um, I'm going to pick up a point that, that, that Mitch just said there around kind of government's kind of awareness of, of AI and, and at the same time also put on my ex-NCSC tech director hat and go, actually, there are some people in government that do know a little bit about AI. Um, the question is, is making sure that they're having the right conversations and, and they're actually then using that technical expertise to kind of form the right policies. And I think with things like uh, the AI Safety Summit that's taking place in Bletchley Park in November, um, it's, it's a really, really good opportunity for governments to bring those expertise in. And as Paul mentioned, a lot of the kind of the experience in AI is in the private sector, is in academia. Actually, that's a good opportunity, not for governments to make the decision, but actually to bring in those, those experts that, that do know what they're talking about to help inform that discussion. I think when it comes to kind of government regulation more generally, there is a little bit of a kind of a, a kind of a gotcha moment when it comes to regulation in terms of not wanting to inhibit the ability for industry to innovate. You want industry to be able to be innovative. And certainly, you know, if there is that ambition for the UK to be an AI superpower, then actually putting almost too much regulation could could hurt that. And I think this is always the balance that takes place between, you know, in an ideal world, you come up with 
international regulation that every country in the world adopts. Like that just doesn't happen, unfortunately. And for pol- political reasons, for geopolitical reasons, um, but also just simply no country can agree with the other country, you don't get those international standards. So in reality, what you end up with is national standards. And the challenge is making sure that the national standards in the UK, for example, are not more inhibitive than the national standards in the US. Otherwise, that means that AI companies could just go to the US to, to, to build their products because it's an easier uh, legislative uh, landscape to do it in. Um, I think there is also a question as well when it comes to regulation, and, and we sort of start to stray into something that is very similar to the Second Amendment discussions in the US, right? Regulation only applies to those that follow the law. And so it's very much saying, yes, AI, you know, it, it, it can't hurt people, it can't blow up buildings. Fine. People who follow the law are probably not going to do those sorts of things anyway. Uh, and so there is a challenge that it's not going to regulate, quote unquote, the bad guys. And, and so there is always a challenge of just understanding the limitations um, of regulation. Um, and then I think then the last point that I'll cover is just, I think, recognising that actually probably regulation probably already exists in AI. And I think maybe we're just we're just trying to think too much about it when it comes to the fact that a lot of AI just about bringing data in one place. Well, we have things like GDPR. We have things like the NIST directive. We have other kind of data protection methodologies that protects data. Um, and some of those then go into things like how we use data, collect data for uh, sensitive PII purposes, maybe in relation to, to vulnerable individuals. Like that isn't a new problem that already exists. We've just not gone, oh, that also applies to the AI system that I've just manufactured. Um, and so I think in some respects, maybe we're we're thinking about this the wrong way and we're actually just need to go well actually a lot of these regulations already apply to AI we just not we shouldn't try and reinvent the wheels here um I think for me if we are going to talk about regulation around AI I think it's a point that potentially I think Lindsay or Mitch might have made um which is around the ethical side of things and understanding that there absolutely is a right and a wrong place for using AI for decision making but just being really clear where that is and understanding that if it's going to have a societal impact actually it sh- should be down to a human to have an input into that so thanks, Toby. And Doug, it's on. Yeah, some, some great answers to that question now. I, I knew it was going to be quite a difficult one to answer. And, and I think everybody touched on the fact that there is already some pieces that are already in, in place. And Toby's just mentioned that um, just a minute ago. But um, I do think that there is a lot of work to be done. Uh, and I think that this will evolve and it will pan out as we go through, um, you know, the coming years. Um but there needs to be a pragmatic approach to it and understanding to be able to temper it with, as we all said, you know, making sure that we can still innovate, protect, you know, the data that is being put into these systems, but also understanding that, and to Toby's point, which is, you know, the guy, the people that want to do harm or use these technologies won't be, they won't be looking at the regulations. They don't care. They're still going to do what they're going to do. So um, we need to make sure that we're not hampering the use of this technology when, Others are using technology to be able to maybe, you know, um, basically steal data, exploit data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, again, I think maybe governments, certainly in the UK, are maybe a little bit slow to look at new technologies. And um, that's my feeling. Um, there's a lot of things obviously in place that try and protect our digital world, but I don't think they always move with the times quite as quickly. And there's obviously a lot of reasons behind that. It has to go through a lot of uh, you know, various things to be able to get approved. But um, yeah, the AI landscape is changing so quickly. And I, I genuinely think that governments aren't able to 
keep up with it and we do need a plan to be able to do this and um you know it's not just the uk as was mentioned you know it's other countries as well and how that all plays together um will be interesting in the coming years stuff thank you doug Okay, uh, so that concludes uh, today's session, so uh, we should leave it there. Um, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Paul Lewis, Doug taylor Mitch Mallard, Toby Lewis, and Lindsay Thorburn for providing their insights into this exciting topic, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to get involved in upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at robert.wall at evolutionjobs.co.uk, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.